0: Let's turn to the Word of God, shall we? Uh, to Corinthians, uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to start a new series with you today. Uh, the series is called Straighten Out. And uh, over the next, you know, little while, whenever I have the opportunity to minister the Word of God to you here, I want to uh, focus on some verses of Scripture that we know really, really well, but we don't actually know what they mean. Because... When we use them, we, we just kind of snatch them out of context. Uh, I know that you don't do that, but there are other Christians that I'm speaking about, right? Yeah. So, it's, and, and it's easy to do. Like, I've been a Christian now for just over 40 years and, and it's easy to, to memorize verses in the Bible, and I think it's great to memorize verses in the Bible. But when we do that, it's so easy just to kind of take them out of the context, and we don't actually ever explore what they really mean. And so we use them thinking they mean X, but they actually mean Y. And so I want to find out why. Little segue, and, and what they actually really mean. So we're going to look at two verses today. Uh, one of them is two Corinthians chapter five and verse seventeen, and then in a few minutes we'll look at one Peter two twenty four. By his stripes you were healed. Is that okay? Yes. All right. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, the word your word says that the entrance of your word brings light, and that's what we pray this morning for each and every one of us. As your word enters our hearts and our minds, shine the light of your truth upon us, that we might see what your word really has to say to us on these two verses in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and we know it so well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We hear this... uh, preached all the time, uh, just on its own. And if we take it out of context, it infers that when you become a Christian, you become perfect. Because if this is really what it's saying, when I become a follower of Jesus Christ, all the old things about Rob Buckingham pass away and everything has become new. Now, if you know me well or even slightly well, you will know that I am not perfect. If you still think I'm perfect, let me do you a favor today and just jump off that pedestal, because at some point in time, you are going to be disappointed. And it's the same with all of us. If if this, just out of context, is taken on face value, when you became a follower of Jesus, all the old things about you passed away, and everything has become new, and, and so problem solved. You should now be a perfect person, but that's not what the Bible is talking about here. You know, the Bible talks about the process of of transformation or sanctification. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul uh, talks about those of us where we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are transformed from one degree of glory or the character or expression of the character of God to the next. The word transformation there is the Greek word metamorpho. No guesses for the English word that we get from that, right? But when a metamorphosis takes place, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, but it's a process. And the Bible says that we have a process that the Holy Spirit is, is, is continuing on the inside of us, that process of <clears throat> excuse me, transformation or sanctification where God starts to deal with us and change us over the process of time. And he who began a good work in us will continue it, until the day of Jesus Christ. So that's good news because as good as you are, you're still not perfect, but God's not finished with you yet. That's why we're to love and care for one another and, and, and love covers a multitude of sins, doesn't run from them. And so that's the important thing here. We've got to understand that, that change is a, is, a, is a process over time. And, and, and so what is Paul actually talking about here? If he's not talking about our perfection in Jesus Christ, well, Paul is actually teaching, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the verses around verse 17, Paul is teaching about Jesus' ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ reconciling the world, or literally bringing the world back into relationship with Himself, canceling their sins. In fact, the Bible says that God was not counting our sins against us. And so he's brought us back into relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. This is all about reconciliation. And he says in these verses that salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection is available to all people. No exclusions. That God loves everyone and that Jesus died and rose again for everyone. And that because of this, Our view of God and our view of people has to change or does change when we become Christians. So the old things that pass away is the way that we used to see God and others. The things that become new is the fact that now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we see God and we see people in a different light. If you just look at the verse before in verse 16, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, in a worldly point of view. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Taking it in context, the apostle is referring to the way he viewed God and viewed people before he became a follower of Jesus. Our view of God and people change at the point of conversion. And that's what Paul is talking about here. If you read through the book of Acts, you see that Paul, because of the way he viewed God as legalistic and judgmental and and for the the faith of Judaism and, and thus any faith that wasn't Judaism became an enemy, the way he saw God then reflected on the way he saw people. Followers of Jesus were to be arrested and put in prison and killed. That's the way he saw God. That's the way he saw people. But when he had that Damascus Road experience and Jesus appeared to him, his life was transformed at that point. He started seeing God in a different way. He started seeing people in a different way. And the people that he used to persecute, he then loved and hung around with and became one of. That happened for me. When I became a follower of Jesus, I was radically changed. Before uh, the age of 19, I didn't even believe in God. I was an atheist and, and proudly so. And so I didn't believe in God. So my, my uh, reflection of, of the way I, I saw life was not through the lens of God or the Bible. And so I, I saw people in a different way. Uh, the way I saw people, well, I've always liked people, but I wasn't really interested in helping anybody. I lived a selfish life. It was all about my satisfaction and my happiness and and my fulfillment and and my plans and my goals and my dreams. And then I was hitchhiking around Australia. I was 19 years of age. I got picked up by a truckie in northern New South Wales. We were involved in a head-on with another truck. Two guys were killed in that accident. When I got out of hospital uh, I, I went and stayed with the truckie and his wife and family uh, in Sydney. And over the next few weeks, what they said, as well as the way they lived, influenced me. And I started to shift and think maybe there is a God. One Sunday night, I, I asked them as they were heading out to church, can I come with you? And they said, yes. I think on the inside, they would go, yes. But I didn't, yes. And so I went along and the pastor preached on John 3.16. I didn't even know there was a John, let alone a 3.16. And and at the end, he gave an appeal and he said, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, get up out of your seat and walk to the front. And I did. And I was still very unsure, you know, and it took another couple of years for this really to kind of sink in and for me to make a very genuine decision to follow Jesus. But that's where things started to change. From that point, I uh, I, I never denied the existence of God. So I became a believer in God at that point. Two years later, I became a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. Big difference. But that's where the transformation started. The old things had passed away. I now believed in God. And because of that, I started to act in a different way. I started to see other people as precious and valuable and loved by God. And I started to, uh, my worldview changed. I wanted now to help people. And my goal in life was not my own Uh, happiness and satisfaction. It was now using the gifts and abilities and resources that God had placed in my life to make sure that I actually lived a life beyond myself. And so the old Rob Buckingham had died in that regard. And, and the new had come. I, I looked at God in a new way. I looked at people in a new way. I had become a new creation in Christ Jesus, and that's what those, that verse is talking about. Not that suddenly old things are passed away and all things have become new, but it's in the context that Paul's talking, the way we see God and the way we see others as a result. Is that clear? Wonderful. I'm so glad it is. Let's do the second one. Let's talk amongst yourselves for a moment, please. Oh, that is good. That's like heaven to my throat. This is the third time I've preached this weekend. And uh, yes, my voice is doing okay. (coughs) Sorry? Somebody help me. Hey! (laughs) I love you on the front row, Emma. This is so good. (laughs) I might just take you everywhere I go and just plonk you on the front row. What do you reckon? Okay, 1 Peter 2.24. This isn't a verse taken out of context. This is a line from a verse. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard this, and you've probably even used it, but never even actually thought what it really means. He himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that he might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You'll notice that there are some inverted commas there, some quotation marks, because Peter is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. So he himself bore our sins. And by his wounds you have been healed are both quotations from Isaiah 53. And the line that's taken out of context and just quoted in isolation is, by his wounds you have been healed, or by his stripes you were healed. Now this verse, as we'll see, actually has nothing to do with physical healing. But I believe in physical healing. But there are plenty of other verses in the Scripture that you can use about physical healing. And so, as a church, we believe that God heals. Now, I'm not going to stand here before you and and tell you that I understand everything about physical healing. In fact, the longer I'm a Christian, the less I think I know about it. Uh, If you ever get someone that gives you a little skinny book titled, Everything You Need to Know About Healing, don't read it because it will oversimplify something that's highly complex. Uh, I don't understand how I can pray for one person and they're healed, and I pray for another person and they're not. I, I have prayed for people uh, over the years, and been, some of them have been instantly healed. Some, that has been the beginning of a process of healing, and others, I've done their funeral. Wynne Lewis, the previous uh, senior pastor of Kensington Temple in London, we had him minister at Bayside quite a few years ago. And I was talking to him about this one day and he said, oh, brother, he said, healing is very, very complex. Uh, He said, we always pray for people, but we leave the results to God. And I think that's important. And he told me the story of one particular morning in London at their church and there were two people in the congregation with terminal cancer. Uh, One was a man uh, in his, I think his 70s or 80s and uh and he was on his own and the other was a young mum of several kids for two or three kids and they both had terminal cancer and he called them both down at the same time he laid hands on both of them at the same time prayed the same prayer the 80 year old man was healed and the young mum died now if I was God dot 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 but we're all glad that I'm not God aren't we Yes, because I'm not perfect and he is. But for whatever reason, he made that choice, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. And I don't understand that with healing. But all I know is that we always pray for people when they're sick. And if God heals, we don't take the glory. And if he doesn't heal, we don't take the blame. And we leave the results to God. If you want to know more about healing, I did a four-part series on healing. It's called Ending the Confusion About Healing. It's on our church website as well as the app, and you can have a listen to those podcasts anytime you like, and they answer some of the most often asked questions about healing. But this verse, by whose stripes you were healed, emphasizes the past tense that is used. And so it talks about, it says, okay, Jesus healed on the cross, but it has happened. By his stripes, you were healed. Healed. And so from that, we get a number of questions and statements. The question like, aren't Christians exempt from sickness because of what Jesus did on the cross? You have been healed. So if you have been healed, then you are healed, according to this teaching. In fact, an entire theology, if you like, of divine healing and health has sprung up from taking this verse completely out of context And this teaching often leads to unkind and condemning statements. People will say to someone who is sick, if if Jesus has taken your sicknesses, then why are you still carrying them? And what a horrible thing to say. If you're unwell, I think my preaching's okay. If, If you're unwell and someone comes to you and says, well, you know, the Bible says by his stripes you were healed, so why are you sick? You say, oh, great question. Thank you. I feel so much better now. No, you just walk away feeling condemned. Um, and then the other people say, well, you know, I'm just not going to receive it. I, had, I heard someone saying that to someone else in our church recently. Please don't say that statement to people. I'm just not receiving it. So you're saying that someone's sick, they're unwell, and, they, and you ask them how they are, and, you go, and they say, oh, I'm not well at the moment. I've got a cold. And they say, oh, well, I'm just not receiving it. You know what? That's just like a whole bucket load of spiritual pride, gift wrapped. That's yucky. You don't say stuff like, where do you even get that statement from? It's not in the Bible. I'm not receiving it. Well, la-di-da-di-da, good on you. <laughs> I'm not receiving it like I did. You know, I've got a, I get a cold. I see this cold kind of wafting past me and go, oh, I'll receive that. Now I'm all bugged up and my eyes are running. Oh, well, you shouldn't have received it, brother. (laughs) That's not Christianity. That is some gobbledygook. That's just not Jesus. So don't use that statement. And if someone uses it, then give them the link to this podcast. (laughs) I'm speaking to you right now, person listening to the podcast. Stop saying that phrase. We had a lady minister at Bayside quite a few years ago when we had a Sunday evening service, and um, Christy and I picked her up from a hotel room, and as soon as she got into the car, it was evident that she was unwell, okay, so she was completely blocked up, her eyes were red and swollen and running, and she was blowing her nose and coughing and spluttering, and I said, oh, I said, you sound terrible, you poor thing, and she goes, no, they're lying symptoms, Lying symptoms because you see, she would take this little verse, this little line, and she'd take it completely out of context. And she'd say, Well, by his stripes, I was healed. So if I was, then I am. And so I'm healed. So even though I have symptoms, they're just lying, they're fake, they're not real. You know, we start to get on really dangerous ground when we start talking like this. Um, because we're actually denying reality. And if you know anything about the human brain, you will know that the brain does not cope well when you deny reality. And actually you start doing really weird stuff to your brain. And I've met Christians like that. You know that they've done weird stuff to their brain because of what they say <laughs> and the way that they act. You know, They're Crazy, crazy Christians. And so she ministered and, you know, she sneezed and coughed all the way through her testimony. And then afterwards we, uh, we, we took her home back to her. And she was still denying that she was sick. And I thought, for goodness sake, you know, take a coddral and lie down. But stop lying about your symptoms because you're sick. You know, Jesus healed people on the basis of their honesty. He asked them what was wrong. They told him and he healed them. Imagine how that guy who was blind when Jesus prayed for him and he said, how are you? And the guy said, well, I kind of—I see people walking around like trees. Now, they're just all blurry now. And so on the basis of his honesty, Jesus prayed again and the guy was completely healed. If this guy had heard some of the rubbish teaching that we hear around the body of Christ on healing, he would have just confessed that he was well. Well, by your stripes, I am healed. I was healed. If I was, then I am and I'm fine now. And then he would have walked around for the rest of his life half blind. Jesus will heal you, but on the basis of your honesty, you don't have to cover it up. So it's important that we understand what Jesus did via his death and resurrection actually has more to do with the healing of the human spirit from the ravages of sin than healing the human body from the results of sickness. And that's what Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter 2.24. Peter, as I said before, is quoting from the prophet Isaiah and he's also quoting the household codes which were very popular in the first century. Let's look at those two things. First of all, Peter is quoting the prophet Isaiah. In uh, in Isaiah 53 verses 1 to 4, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now Isaiah wrote this in 700 or around 700 BC. He had no concept of Messiah, and he certainly had no concept of a man called Jesus who would live 700 years later, let alone the concept of crucifixion. When Isaiah penned this, he was not thinking of the Messiah, and he was certainly not thinking of Jesus. In fact, in Isaiah the prophet, this is one of four songs, and so Isaiah is using poetic or metaphorical language here to describe the nation of Israel, this man who suffers on behalf of others. Of course, 700 years later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, that's a great story, that reminds me of Jesus, I'm going to borrow that and apply that to Jesus Christ. It's important that we understand that. And so what Isaiah is actually talking about here is a well-known pagan rite in his day. So 700 BC, this is something that was practiced by pagan religions up to a 1,000 years before this, so around 1700 BC, right through Isaiah's time, and it was called the right of the substitute king. And it went something like this. When evil omens were suggesting that the life of the king was in danger, they would instigate the right of the substitute king. So evil omens to these people who were, of course, highly superstitious would be something like an eclipse, So when they knew an eclipse was coming or when they saw an eclipse, to them as superstitious pagans, they thought that that was an evil sign that evil was going to come upon the king and his life was threatened. So at that point, they would instigate this right of the substitute king. It worked on the principle that evil could be transferred from one individual to another. When the dangerous period was to occur, the king was replaced by a substitute on whom the evil fate could fall. In some cases, the substitute was someone considered to be of no significance, someone who was either mentally or physically impaired. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Let's recognize that the world we live in today is a far better place than it was 2,700, 3,700 years ago. See, if you listen to some Christian teaching, you would think the world is getting worse worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But in fact, as you look around the world, and I'm not saying that we still don't have lots of problems and difficulties in the world, we certainly do, but in a large extent, the world has got better and better and better and better and better. Life today is better than it was 50 years ago. Life today is better than it was 100 or 200 years ago. I love history. I'm always reading uh, history as part of my my reading diet. And uh, of late, I've been reading some of the life and times of Genghis Khan. What a nasty individual he was. And on almost every page, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude that I wasn't alive then. I don't know how I would go. I don't think I could even survive if you were to transport me back. Right now, into the times of Genghis Khan, I think I would just die. I probably would, you know, because they were, all, they were killing everybody, but it would just be horrible. And so the world has actually got a better place. But these people were superstitious and they believed that the evil omens that were aimed at the king could, could be uh, transferred to somebody else. And, and they would find someone who was mentally ill or someone who was physically disabled and they would say, This person has no value in our society. And so it doesn't matter if we take their lives. Thank goodness that's changed where we view all people as precious and valuable no matter how they find themselves in this life. So the substitute would then be exalted to high status and office for up to 100 days. During this time, the real king was kept in relative isolation and he went through various purification rituals, but in an isolated and safe place where evil could not get at him. The substitute would go through the motions of being king and sitting on the throne. He was portrayed as a shepherd, but was really a sheep who was about to be slaughtered. At the end of the allotted time for the substitute king, the king would then be stripped of all of his insignias. A pagan priest would then come and clench his fists and literally whack this guy on both cheeks like this. And so he was bruised. He was bruised, taking on the evil or the iniquity off the real king so that the real king's life was spared. This was all placed on the substitute. They would then, the high priest would then take the substitute and drag him by the ears and force him to bow down in front of the uh, idol of the, of the god Marduk, who was one of the senior or deities of the Babylonian Empire back in that day. They would then torture him and slaughter him and uh, then they would have a, uh, a state funeral for this poor individual and, uh, and make offerings on behalf uh, of the gods to spare the real king from all harm, thus transferring the evil that they believed was destined for the real king and transferring it to the substitute. In the Bible background commentary, it says this, thus it was the will of the gods to crush him, He was given a rich state funeral and an offering was made and exorcism rituals performed so that the omens would be cancelled and the days of the real king would be prolonged. Over 700 years later, the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes this same story in Isaiah and relates it to Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross. That the punishment or the evil that was due to come to each and every one of us because we have broken the laws of God in the the grace and love of God all of that was taken from us and placed on the substitute Jesus who through his death and resurrection frees us from all of that punishment so that we are now reconciled to God enjoying relationship with him isn't that great news and what a wonderful story And so Peter is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and then secondly, Peter is quoting the household codes. In the first century Roman Empire, household codes were very popular. They were strongly in favour of the man. Something else that has thankfully changed over the process of time. The patriarch of the family had absolute authority over his wife, his children, his extended family, his slaves, and his freedmen. According to the patria postestus, the law and the reality of women and I quote, originally this power was absolute and included the power of life and death. The man of the house could acknowledge, banish, kill or disown any of his children. A first century jurist recounts the story of a man beating his wife to death because she had drunk some wine and his neighbours approved. The world has become a better place. Even in my lifetime I have watched a greater awareness uh, come into the psyche of the of the community, uh, and a le- and less tolerance for things like domestic violence. And thank God that that has happened. That, that we're much more aware of those things, and we're much more intolerant in our society of a man who would beat his wife, uh, and and rightly so. We should stand against those things. Uh, and and so when you think about some of the stuff that used to happen, and this was all in the household codes in the Roman Empire of the first century. Now, the New Testament writers, particularly Paul and Peter, include household codes in their writing, which would have been incredibly radical in first century Rome, actually giving um, uh, some level of dignity to women in a highly patriarchal society, So read some of those household codes, Ephesians chapter 5, for example, uh, Colossians chapter 3, and here in 1 Peter chapter 2, the context of 1 Peter 2.24 is one of these household codes. They often give guidelines to husbands and wives, to parents and children, and to masters and slaves, and that's the context here. In 1 Peter 2.24 is a household code where Peter addresses how slaves are to behave even when they're enslaved to unjust masters. So he's writing to Christian slaves. 1 Peter 2, and if we look to read the context here, let's pick it up from verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable, if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit? If you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer, and here by inference, if you suffer a beating for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. And then it gives us the example of Jesus Because Christ suffered for you, for doing no wrong, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then he quotes from the right of the substitute king he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls now i want you to notice here i mean we read some of this from a 21st century perspective and we wonder why the bible actually appears to uh, authenticate the whole thing of slavery But we're reading it from a 21st century perspective looking back. Uh, In the first century, there was no chance for the abolition of slavery. No one was even thinking along the lines of abolishing slavery. There were occasional isolated slave rebellions, but they were quickly and brutally quashed. And and so uh, slaves just accepted their lot in life. And in first century Roman Empire, 50% of the people were slaves. The entire Roman Empire, the economy of the empire, was based on slavery. It would have been completely counterproductive to Christianity for its writers and its preachers to start talking about abolition because they would have been quickly stamped out. And so what Peter is doing here is writing to slaves particularly, but in other parts to masters of slaves, helping them in their relationship. Paul talks to masters. He says, treat your slaves well. He writes to slaves, do well for your masters and all of this kind of thing. Not advocating for slavery, but saying, make the best of life because this is what life is like for you. And not even realizing that it would take another 1,800 years for us to even think about abolishing slavery and that slaving another person would be wrong. That's why he's talking in this way. Peter is writing to slaves on how to best conduct themselves in the situation in which they find themselves. Peter says that slaves who are treated unjustly are to look to the example of Jesus who was also treated unjustly and he took it well. Behave in the same way. That's the context of 1 Peter 2.24. The context is Jesus' sin-bearing work on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Peter is speaking of healing or being made whole from the effects of sin, particularly the sin of continually straying from God. And so he says, remember, the right of the substitute king, and what Jesus has done for you. And when you suffer, take it well. And what a wonderful truth that is for us. Not that we stay in a place of suffering if we can remove ourselves from it, but if we find that we're in a situation like these slaves where we can't get away, he says, when you suffer, take it well. And so think about that. You know, in your workplace, at university, in school, maybe even you've got family members who who treat you unkindly. When you suffer, remember Jesus. Take it well. Let's pray together.